0: When I first got into the ministry, I had made it a goal to try to explain all these things in ways that, um, in ways that made total sense, but um, the further in f- I got into Bible school, the more I understood that this goal was impossible. And what I found is that any attempt to fully explain an infinite God using finite human language is always going to fall short, especially when we speak of his triune nature as believed in the Bible. And what I had to do, and what really all of us have to do sooner or later, is embrace the concept of mystery. A mystery is a phenomenon or an occurrence that just can't be explained. Mystery is part of our faith, because think about this idea for a moment. If God were small enough for our minds to totally comprehend then he couldn't be God. And so I've learned to be comfortable with mystery, and in many ways it gives me a sense of peace that I don't have to know everything because I trust in a God that does know everything. And if I need to know it, he'll reveal it, and if I don't need to know it, then it's not important to me. And it sounds like a really strange way to begin a Bible lesson, doesn't it? It's like we're trying to explain something that is is unknowable, And I'll probably need a lot of help this morning, so I'm going to ask God to bless our time together. Father God, we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to touch us, to fill us, to clear our minds of of arguments and clear our minds, Father, of, of needing to be absolutely right about everything and know everything and help us to just embrace that there are some things so wonderful we cannot understand it. But at the same time, your word commands us to know you and that you want to be known. So help us to to walk that tightrope and exist between those two things pulling at us in such a way that brings glory to you and peace to our minds. I ask this in your name. Amen. So we're going to start this morning by briefly touching on the Trinity. And here's a little historical background about the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's go back to 300 AD. The Christian Church is fragmented. It's existing all over the known world at that time, and the known world at that time pretty much consists of Europe, Asia, and Africa, especially northern part of Africa. You have Christian churches in all of these areas. The church has been going under has been under intense persecution, especially up to about 312. AD, when the emperor Diocletian is on the throne, and Diocletian made it his life's mission to wipe out the Christian church, destroy any writings about Christianity, and to stamp out this religion from the Roman Empire. Diocletian dies, Constantine rises to power and um, stops all that persecution, and many people believe that he actually was converted and became a Christian. So prior to this, within this church, there was no agreed upon Bible yet because the church leaders couldn't risk coming together. Um, there was no agreed upon central theology. And so all of this was kind of fragmented in and amongst the church. And these, these leaders within the church, people like Polycarp and Arrhenius and all of them, they would write instructional letters to the churches, but it wasn't the same as the entire church coming together and figuring out who they were and exactly what they, um, what they believed. So they had, under Constantine, the first major meeting of church leaders takes place in 325 AD in Nicaea, which is a city in modern-day Turkey called Iznet. This council was called specifically to address a a belief held by the Eastern Orthodox Church at that time uh, called Arianism, one of the things we just heard about in that video, that held that Jesus was not eternal, but he was a created being. He was a man that essentially ascended into godhood. During this council, the doctrine was rejected, and the council created the Nicene Creed, which spelled out the nature of the triune God. In Lutheran catech confirmation classes, I was required to memorize this along with the Apostles' Creed. Don't worry, I won't quote it to you because it's quite long. In the video, they also mentioned the Athenian Creed. I'm going to focus just on the one part here. It talks about the Trinity. It says that Christians worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding, which means confusing, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the essence. And we had that diagram up there just a moment ago that shows you exactly what they are talking about. And it looks very contradictory, but it explains exactly what we are talking about, that there are three different forms of the same God. That's even kind of a heresy to say that. But there are three different persons within the adorable Godhead. That's a better way of saying it. And they are separate, but they are also equal. And defined in the Bible as this this idea of Trinity. Now the criticism of this doctrine is that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. And while it is true that that word "Trinity" does not appear in the Bible, the concept is unmistakable, and the best—it's also the best way to understand the nature of the God we worship, and we—and the Bible, as it explains it throughout, um, throughout its entire text. And for years, I admit I've tried to explain the Trinity to people, and when they they, they ask for more and ask for more and ask for more. It, almost always you will fall back into one of those heresies discussed in the video. And usually modelism is the one I fall back into, um, saying that God is three forms, or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three forms of the same God. But I've just gotten to the point now where I just say this is what it is, and I take the words of a very man, wise man named Forrest Gump, who said, that's all I'm going to say about that. Sometimes you just have to stop explaining and say, this is simply the truth. Do I understand it completely? Nope. But again, if God was small enough for my mind, He wouldn't be big enough to meet my needs. So we know from the last message in this series that God the Father is God. And we can all agree on this. This week we're going to briefly speak on the Holy Spirit being God, as the Holy Spirit gets His own message in a few weeks. So I'm just going to give you a couple of scriptural references about the triune God that might help you if a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon shows up on your door um, to be able to refute what they believe. Now the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that was created actually by the Christian church. The doctrine of the Trinity starts in Genesis 1 verse 1. They already speak about God in the plural. And I'm going to read it. And say the name of God as stated in the original text because it'll make it a little clearer. Genesis one: in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And Rauch Elohim was hovering over the faces of the waters. Now that name Elohim for God is God in singular plurality. What that means is, it's not as contradictory as it it sounds, or to say that, but it means a singular God expressed in different forms. Now before your brain starts going down into one of those wrong paths that we looked at, remember we're in the first verse of the Bible. And the concept of the Trinity gets more defined the further as we go. But we do see at least two parts of the same God here, because they talk about Rauch Elohim, which is the Spirit of God. So we see the Father and we see the Spirit and we don't see the Son yet until we get to the um, until we get to the New Testament in Colossians one that says he he is Jesus in this context Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for by him Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It keeps going and it says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So you see all three members of the Trinity being talked about in the Bible as being all part of our creation, when we spoke about the one true God a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned the Hebrew statement of faith called the Shema. In Deuteronomy 6 verses four and five also speaks of the God and Trinity. If you look at it in English, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. If you say it in the Hebrew, it is Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohenu Yaloha Echad. It, Elohim there, again, plurality of the singular form of Hebrew, and Echad, meaning many as one. So they're saying Yahweh Echad, it means that there are many within that Godhead, but he is one God. So the Shema that the Jewish people say every morning is part of their prayers, they don't even realize they're actually proclaiming the Trinity that we as Christians believe in. It's kind of a great irony in the faith. And finally, just to point out the deity of the Holy Spirit and that he is worthy of worship, we see it in the baptismal formula that our Lord Jesus gave us to baptize people in. What do we baptize people in? the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, if all three of those were not God, Jesus was committing heresy. One, by elevating himself to God, and two, by declaring the Holy Spirit as God. And Jesus obviously would never do that. So that's all I'm going to say about the Trinity today. If you have any other questions about this or anything else we look at today, I just encourage it. write it down at the back of your bulletin. We'll address them at the end of this lesson. Or if you're one of the people that are actually listening by podcast right now, we do have a lot of people that listen by podcast, you can email me at pastorjohnosker at gmail.com. So we're going to switch now and speak specifically to the deity of Christ and why it is important that we believe that Jesus is God. And to answer that question, we have to go back and ask another question. What was God's original intent with creating you and me? Why is it? Because it's very important why um, Jesus has to be God. And we're going to see that we go back into the beginning to Genesis chapter 1 again. In Genesis 1.26, it says, And God said, Let us, another example of God's triune nature, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created the heavens and the earth, and then finally humanity, and then he turns it all over to Adam and Eve. In essence, God named them regents over his creation and a regent was a person who a monarch would put um, somebody underneath him to run all the day-to-day stuff within the kingdom so that the the monarch would be free from from all of that tedium. So that's what he in essence that's what he is doing with Adam and Eve is that he created this creation for them and then told them they get to exercise dominion they get to rule it is theirs to do with as, rulers under his rulership and you see this a lot in ancient cultures where a monarch would do that Um, bible has a great example of that in genesis with joseph and the pharaoh of egypt you remember joseph interprets the pharaoh's dream pharaoh has this this dream where he sees several years of great abundance followed by seven years of famine that wipes out his country And he's afraid, and and he he calls out for the wise man, and he says, who can interpret this dream? And Joseph interprets this dream. Pharaoh recognizes that the Spirit of God is on this man and elevates him to that position where he is the ruler of Egypt. Only Pharaoh sits on the throne. But in essence, Joseph is now running Egypt. That's what is going on here in in Genesis uh, chapter 1. And part of God's nature is that of a creator, and we see that throughout the Bible. God is creator, and the highest creation that God could make was something that was on par with himself. That's where we get into this image of God. And I want to be careful in saying that when God created Adam and Eve and you and me, he didn't make them to be gods, but he gave them what was most essential to his spirit or I mean, essential to his nature, which that is being of a spirit. I don't know if you know this, but, but you and I are spirits in physical bodies. We have a tendency to worry so much about what's going on with this thing and ignore what is truly our nature. But really, you and I are a spirit, and that spirit that exists within each of us is what gives us our higher mental faculties in comparison with any creature on earth. I compare it to a to a dog who you put out on a chain who has something else there that he runs around, he gets tangled up in that chain, and he can't get out because he doesn't have that higher mental faculty to say, well, just go in the other direction and you'll unwrap yourself from that chain. You and I would be able to figure that out very quickly where a dog cannot. Job 32.8 puts it this way. It is the spirit in a person and the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. Job says, it's that very imago Dei, that image of God that's intrinsic to all humanity that gives us that higher standing amongst all other um, created beings within God's creation. Part of that image of God that is stamped in each one of us is that higher reasoning that makes us be able to have informed and reasoned decisions. In other words, you and I have a free will. You and I can choose what we are going to do. Whereas that dog cannot really choose what he can do. He is basically an instinctual animal who's going to do just very limited amount of things. You're never going to see him create anything. He's just going to go off of his instinct. But you and I have a free will to choose. And in the innocence of creation, Adam and Eve initially only chose to do that which was God's will. Well, why did they do that? They didn't know there was any other option. They They didn't know that they could do anything else other than what God had instructed them to do. And God gave instructions, very simple. Don't eat of the one tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you will die. That was it. When when people tell me that God makes too many rules for us to possibly follow, I just come back and say they couldn't even do one. It was very easy. They had everything else that they could touch, create, order around, do whatever they wanted to, except for one thing. And they couldn't even do that. Well, a former cherubim named Lucifer took advantage of that. The Bible generally refers to Lucifer as Satan. Satan comes along and told Eve, God's lying to you. He goes, he can eat He doesn't want you to eat of it. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. God's not good because he won't let you be like him. Adam Adam and Eve leave that lie and chose the wrong way. And they rebelled against God's sovereign command and follow Satan instead. And because, as we learned a few weeks ago, our God is holy and just, he must punish failure to follow his commands. The punishment that he laid down, he said, the moment you do, you will die. And the punishment for all sin is eternal death found in a place called hell. Hell is simply the absence of loving fellowship with your creator God. Since part of the image of God that was placed in each one of us is to be completely dependent upon close and intimate relationship with the Creator. We cannot exist apart from Him. In other words, we cannot exist in His presence if we choose a lifestyle of sin. We cannot choose to live in His happiness. We cannot choose to live in His joy, His peace, His fulfillment, His prosperity, or His protection. We're intimately supposed to be connected with him. And in essence, the absence of that is all of what hell is, and what all of hell will be for those who rebel against God. And when Adam and Eve, or God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, he told them that if they step outside of their commands, they would die. He wasn't talking just about a physical death, in so much as he was talking about that spiritual death. And the key to understanding how God relates to us at any point when you're looking at the Bible or even how the plan of salvation works is that when God is speaking to you, He's speaking to you as a spirit, Joe being, not necessarily this being that exists in a body. It would be like if we were in outer space and we have to have a, a spacesuit on to be able to survive in outer space, and I'm sitting here talking to your spacesuit and not the person inside the spacesuit. It's kind of the same thing. We are a spirit that exists within this physical body. However, Adam and Eve's failure did not catch God by surprise. You know, a lot of people think that the cross is a knee jerk reaction to a God who is caught unaware. No, he knew that by giving them free will and free choice, that eventually they would choose wrongly. But because of his great love for us, the Bible says that God does not desire that any should perish, but all should come into repentance. God who sees the end from the beginning knew that this burden of free will would result in humanity choosing poorly. Therefore, as part of the divine plan in creation, God created an escape plan for us that allowed both for free will and a way that God's holy and just nature could be satisfied. And how do I know this was part of his creation plan? Because the Apostle John tells us in Revelation 13, 80, said that the Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world. That when God, the Holy Spirit, and the Son sat down inside to plan out creation, they said, I want to give these people free will. I don't want them to be automatons that we are going to wind up and walk around and say, I love you, God, I love you, God, I love you, God. I want them to be able to say, I love you, God, from from a heart that actually expresses the emotion. And in order to do that, we have to give them free will. But if you give them free will, they might choose poorly. Okay, well, we have to create some type of system where they can be saved. See, God knew we would fail. So God created a way for us to escape what his moral character demands, that all sin should be punished. God, Since there was only one punishment for sin, and that is eternal separation from God, God himself made the way. This is where Jesus comes in, the second person of the triune God. This is one of my greatest tripping points when I went through confirmation classes in the Lutheran church. And it's not their fault. I, honestly, I skipped most of my confirmation classes. And because of that, I did not understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because I didn't really understand God's holy nature. And that he always requires justice for wrongdoing. And since God declared a divine edict that said that the soul that sins must die, and because of the limitations found in human and created beings, no human could ever satisfy that divine justice. No human could ever live a life that would totally and completely satisfy him and his holy character. Not only that, but no human could ever hope to live that perfect life and then take upon himself the sin of all other humans because he is limited by himself being a created being. You needed an infinite God to take upon himself all that sin. You need an infinite God to show the holiness of God being fulfilled. For a human being by himself or herself trying to do that would be like using a small wading pool to hold the water volume of Lake Michigan. It just simply could not happen. We're not constructed in such a way to hold that much water. Just like you and I are not created with the ability to take on ourselves all the sin of all the humanity. And that's why God took it upon himself to satisfy his own divine justice and make that way for us to experience fellowship with him in heaven forever. That's why the deity of Christ matters. Because salvation doesn't work without Jesus being divine. Without God, the eternal Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, coming through the Virgin Mary, God becoming flesh. That's why Jesus being fully identified with God, or I'm sorry, Jesus being God, fully identified with you and I. Because of his divine and boundless nature, he was able to bear the weight of all of our sin. And you see what happened when that sin fell upon him, when God's justice was being met out and being placed upon him. You see it in his fourth cry from the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was acting out the Old Testament under the law of Moses. They would take two animals. The first animal the elders of the community and the priests would lay their hands upon them and symbolically transfer the sin of the nation upon this this animal. That animal would be slain on the altar as sacrifice, and so it would die, showing God's seriousness and how he deals with sin. The second animal they would do the same thing, except this animal they would drive into the desert. And they would all symbolically then turn their backs on that animal, saying that God is taking our sin away from us. Well, Jesus's cry on the cross here was God turning his back to his only son. And, cry, and in response to that, Jesus, God the Son, experienced something he had never, ever felt before. And that was the lack of the presence of the rest of the Trinity. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And when you look at all the ceremony and all the detail and all the sacrifices and rituals that take place in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it was all to point to the cross. It was all fulfilled by Jesus. God the Son was taking upon himself the sin of the entire world and suffering the punishment that you and I deserve. That's why it matters that Jesus Christ is God, because only He could do that. Some believe that Jesus was the Archangel Michael. If you believe that, you're dead in your sins, because Michael is an angel. Michael had no identification with humanity. Therefore, he could not die for our sins. If you try to relegate Jesus to just being a good man who said good things, you're dead in your sins. Because a good man would not repeatedly lie to the people by calling himself God and saying that he and the Father are one. If you try to say that Jesus was just a man who by living a good and moral life became God and that you and I could follow the same path, then you've left the reservation Of biblical Christianity, and you are dead in your sin. The deity of Jesus Christ is the Sidana qua nun or the absolute essential belief of Christianity. Because without it, the rest of the biblical truth and the rest of the faith and the rest of the Bible falls apart. So I ask you this morning do you believe in the correct Jesus? Or have you created a Jesus in your own mind that isn't the one that we see plainly revealed in Scripture? Jesus himself warned us that many would come in his name. Those people would lead people down wrong paths. And the reason we have this message this morning is to show you the right Jesus so that your faith and your eternal destiny is sure. Because if you believe in any one of those other Jesuses, your faith is of your own imagination. And my friend, you are doomed when you stand before God. Jesus is God, and only this God will save you and can save you from your rebellion and sin. You don't have to understand all the complexities of everything that goes on in Christianity. You don't have to have a master's degree in theology. But you do have to believe in the name, the only name that was given by, to men by which they must be saved. And that name is Jesus. Amen?